Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. Hello everybody, uh, we're back for a podcast on the River Colne in West Yorkshire. And at the moment um, we're right at the top where the River Colne starts. It's a pretty cold windy day in late October. The Heather Moor is right behind us and all these tiny streams run off the moor, join to form the River Colne. We're standing right by the confluence, at the intersection of the two main streams. And then there are fields on either side as it goes downstream. So we're probably about a mile above a small West Yorkshire Pennine town called Marsden, famous for its jazz festival. The Colne itself starts up here in the moors, runs through Marsden, then other towns. Slowit. Yeah, Slowit, Linthwaite, Milnesbridge. And then Longroy, Huddersfield, and then after that goes down past Huddersfield Town Football Ground um, through a big chemical plant called Syngenta into a quite an industrial area um, and ends up joining the river Calder downstream from Colnebridge. Yeah. And then the Calder travels further on down and joins the River Eyre and then the air eventually goes into the Humber. And so it goes out into the sea, in the, the Humber. In, goes into the North Sea. And, yeah, what have we chosen to do the River Colne, Jay? Um, well, I spent some time on the River Colne uh, this summer. I walked from the top to the bottom of the River Colne uh, for a project I was doing. I was looking at, really, our relationships with rivers. Um, because I've read about um, a river in New Zealand called the Waganui or something like that uh, where the Maori tribes who live in that river catchment have worked with the legislators in the area to give the river the same rights as a human being. So they've, they've got a completely different relationship with their river, haven't they? Yeah. A very special relationship with their river. Yeah, and they've done that because of the pollution and the damage and the exploitation that have taken place in the river catchment over the decades, I suppose. Well, so they wanted to protect it. Yeah, yeah, and they, they, they talk about, I am the river, the river is me. They're very, very connected with the river and they see it as a living being, almost as a, as a human being. And that they're completely connected. Absolutely, absolutely. So that got, got me thinking about our relationship in the West and with our rivers. Yeah, and this river in particular is complete contrast to that, isn't it? I mean, one of the characteristics of the River Colne is that it's a very industrialised river. Yeah, I mean, in the past, it was used intensively for powering wool and cotton mills, wasn't it? And yeah. for washing wool. Yes, yeah, so it was very intensely used for the wool industry throughout its length. And Huddersfield was renowned for its high-quality wool products. So it's not going during the Industrial Revolution, but the peak for the Huddersfield wool industry was the late 19th century, early 20th century. And they discovered that these fast-flowing, slightly acidic soft water that came from these streams was particularly good for wool processing. Especially the washing of the wool. Mm. One thing that you notice if you walk down the River Colne is the way that it's been engineered. So lots and lots of weirs. Uh, you at least up. 32. So we're talking about a 12-mile stretch of water because it's 32 weirs. 
and they were there to slow the water so it could be more easily extracted. Controlled. And even up here, right at the start, um, the river's been constrained on both sides by walls. Yeah. So right from its start, it's being managed to flow in a straight line over lots of weirs down to where it finishes um, in Colmbridge. And also along its length, there were mills at least at the peak of the wool and yeah. textile at least industry. 120 at least 120 on that 12 mile stretch and uh, beside it but that must be on the tributaries as well you can't you couldn't actually fit 120 mills in 12 miles could you yeah that's what it says yeah i've looked online at various <laughs> <laughs> industrial heritage sites okay Okay. Um, we've heard few people passing by, haven't we? I mean, it's fair to say this is a very popular spot. We're in the most, I guess, what you'd call the most beautiful part of the catch. Yeah, and it's a lovely rushing stream. And I think the flow today, it stands quite noisy, doesn't it? But it's kind of medium. This is probably what it's like most of the time. It's been a bit wet recently, but not, nothing excessive. And it's rocky, fast flowing, lots of little rapids. And the water's this peaty brown colour. So it's it's clear but brown. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, make our way down the river during the course of the podcast um, and stop off at a few places and have a little listen and a chat. sitting here in the car, Joey. It's um, pouring. There's a really heavy shower. I mean, I hope it's only a shower. Because we're about to get back down in the river, aren't we? Yeah, we've come a little bit further downstream. We're downstream of... Slowick. Well, no... In Slowick. We're in Slowick. We've come down to this bit of the river to think about the mills, haven't we? Yeah, and also to visit the famous Bat Tower. Hmm. So we're parked up on an industrial estate called spa fields and I think there was actually once upon a time a spa yeah there were mineral rich springs that people uh, made into a spa and it became like a visitor attraction with bandstands and festivals and general in Victorian times should we get out of the car the rain seems to have subsided I mean, it's still pretty blustery, but I don't think it's going to get any better. No, it's good. The sun is trying to come out. We're back down by the river. We're on a little bridge that crosses the river over to um, an industrial estate, and you can hear the uh, reversing of a forklift truck in the background um, there's a guy loading up a lorry with pallets and um, it's quite an industrial river really in that you've got these post-industrial mill towns but these big warehouses and industrial estates where there's still um, kind of industrial activity or manufacturing activity going on and um, we're here at the moment next to a chemical plant and it smells the air just smells quite chemically doesn't it yeah it does and further down there's a really really big chemical plant called syngenta where the river disappears into that site mm. and goes through the middle of it So Grosvenor Chemicals, which is behind us, is a bit of a chequered history. Um, the River Colne has suffered some really serious pollution incidents in the last few decades. And 
there was one in 2010 which caused a massive fish kill and, and the chemical plant behind us had a big fire and the fire engines came along, put out the fire. The water that was used to put out the fire, which was highly contaminated, ran off into the river. Mm. And a lot of fish and invertebrate life was killed. So chemicals from the factory ended mm. up in the river? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a particular chemical called cypermethrin that was probably responsible for a lot of the damage. It's an insecticide. So used in agriculture and stuff? Yeah, it's used across a range of things. Um, it's approved for use in pesticides, so uh, insecticidal products for crops, but also you can use it in your home and garden. It's used in veterinary medicines as an ectoparasite, so for killing ticks and lice on sheep, killing weevils in forestry. Um, so that's so that was in this factory right near the river and then all leaked out into the river when the fire was put out it ran off yeah. the site in yeah. the fire water um, another common use is as a moth proofer yeah. so to treat textiles with cypermethrin you're basically kind of treating them with an insecticide which then prevents the moths eating your textile. Right. And the rivers along here in, in West Yorkshire, what with the textile industry being mm. so prominent in previous decades, um, the issue of moth proofers in water mm. was quite serious. Processing of textiles and treatment of textiles, finishing of textiles before they're ready to be sold, you commonly put a moth proofer on them but then the trade effluents from these factories would go to the sewage works so that's another way which these toxic chemicals were getting into the river yeah they, and the, the sewage works would remove some of the moth proofers yeah. but not all of them so you'd get small but continuous levels of these toxic chemicals like cypermethrin and permethrin going into the rivers mm. kind of impairing the quality of the rivers really mm. then on top of that you've got the risk of sites such as this chemical plant which are right next yes yeah, so any accident to the that, river on that plant could end yeah stuff can end there's up in a the con river. continual risk of stuff accidentally getting in yeah I mean, I'm just thinking about why we're using that chemical in the first place, and it's, but it sounds like some of the uses, we could actually go out and buy cypermethrin. You or I could go out and buy a, cypermethrin. In a garden centre or something. Yeah. yeah. So in the UK, we've got standards to protect aquatic life. So these are kind of concentration limits that you mustn't breach. You know, so in how water. much of this particular chemical is allowed to be in the water? Yeah, so if something happens and you breach your limit and you end up going to court for a pollution incident that would be one of the pieces of evidence that would be used you've breached the environmental quality standard for chemical x and depending on how toxic the chemical is the limit is either higher or lower so the more toxic it is the smaller amounts you're allowed in a river before you start causing harm. Mm. And for cypermethrin, the limits are absolutely infinitesimally minute. So they're very, very tiny concentrations reflecting the extreme toxicity. So I'll just read out the, the environmental quality standard for the EQS. And if we bear in mind that um, we're talking about micrograms per litre here, so if you think about one microgram per litre, that's equivalent to one part per billion, okay? One part chemical to a billion parts water is one microgram per litre. So for hypermethrin, they've done a series of tests to determine its toxicity and the limits that they've come up with are an annual average concentration that must be breached and that is, wait for it, 0 0.00, 0 0.00, 0 
0.08 micrograms per litre. And then a, a maximum concentration. So that's like a concentration that should never be breached, or 95% of the time shouldn't be breached. That's 0.00. So it's three noughts instead of four. 0.0006 micrograms per litre. That's like 0.0006 parts per billion before you are at risk of causing damage to insect life. Which, which makes you wonder why we as householders could go to a garden centre, buy a, buy a product that is that toxic to insects, yeah and spray it all over our garden. And potentially it would end up in the sewer or the drains running off from the garden. Well, if you follow all the instructions on the label, then that shouldn't happen. Mm. It's when you might do something silly, like decide you want to get rid of your pesticide and you'll pour it down the sink mm. or pour it down a drain mm. outside. Where does that drain go? But either way, you're still spraying something on a plant that's going to wipe out the insect that you're trying to get rid of but probably every other insect as well because of the toxicity. So the levels measured in the River Colne after the pollution incident at Grosvenor Chemicals in 2010 were 0.696 micrograms per litre. So so a lot more. Like is that like a thousand times higher than the the maximum allowable concentration? So, yeah, loads of insect life and fish died. But they did restock the river. About a year later, the Environment Agency restocked it with grayling. Um, About 5,000 grayling went in. Mm. And, you know, wildlife bounces back, doesn't it? I saw quite a few grey wagtails on my journey down the river this summer, feeding presumably on insect life yeah. in the river and on the days I was out I saw quite a few dippers yeah. um, working their way up and down the river herons were quite common as well yeah. and all those birds uh, they all like clean fast flowing rivers with plenty of insect life so they're quite good indicators that the, you know, the river's not doing too badly yeah. yeah and we saw fish didn't we we saw little um, fry yeah um, schools and schools of little fry. But also about. some fish that were like, like four to six inches long. Yeah. Whether they were small grading or trout. Mm. I don't know. You'd see them coming up to the surface of the water to catch flies and moving about in the water. So at the moment, there's quite a lot of life in the river. And across the road from us, we just turn and face the other way. Right on the opposite side of the river is a small tower, maybe about... 10 metres high, built of local stone, and there's a little plaque in the middle of it saying Bat Tower 2009. I mean, it looks like a sort of stumpy old chimney, doesn't it? But it's been built especially. I gather it's like a bat hotel. (laughs) And I did come here one evening in August with some people with a bat detector mm. and we we made some bat recordings there's a heron just flying over now behind the bat tower the bats were flying up and down this stretch of the river feeding yeah. feeding at dusk on the insects yeah. yeah and there were two fishermen mm. who'd just been fishing as well we had a conversation with them about the bats because they fly very close to your face yeah and then swoop away And here is a recording of the bats by the bat tower in the summer swooping along the river.
we've come a bit further downstream and we're actually by the ruins of an old mill. Massive old mill. Probably from Victorian times. And I think to get here, we walked along a path that was previously the mill race and then into an area that was previously a mill pond yeah. and is now um, full of willow and silver birch. And just before the mill race, or by the mill race, was a weir. Yeah, damming up the water of the river. And then the mill race is like a ditch carrying the water into the mill pond. Yeah. And then that, the mill pond is right next to the mill, and the mill can use the, the water for power for other purposes within the mill. Yeah. And it's, um, one of the old woollen mills was a place where wool fabric was manufactured on an industrial scale. Start with your rain. Yeah, so we said there were at least well over 100 mills on this river at its peak. But, um, I mean, the kind of woolen industry started in this area um, in the 18th century. And it was just a cottage industry at that time. So people were weaving wool fabric in their houses up on the hills. And there was a big wool trade centred on Huddersfield. And you pointed out um, some of the small cottages on the sides of the valley. Yeah. Which have large windows. A row of windows. On the first floor. Yeah, first and second floor. So to maximise the light coming into the house. Because they wouldn't have had any other form of lighting. And you need light to be able to do weaving. Um, and then uh, the Industrial Revolution started in the early 19th century, and that's the time when the, the mills in the valley bottom started being built. So that's weaving in factories. And the people who used to be weaving in their homes, the cottage industry people, they were immediately put out of business and you know, thrown into poverty. And they rebelled against the new factories and new mills and the machinery, and they were the Luddites. So this whole area was a centre of the... Um, Luddites rebellions around about 1811, 1812. Where they actually went in and tried yeah. to destroy industrial they the new industrial smashed up the machines machinery, yeah, yeah. that were putting them out of work. Oh, is it hailing? <laughs> anyway, yes, the machine, we have hail. <laughs> the mills and their machines, the Industrial Revolution took off, and Huddersfield was a, was a fantastic centre for mill produced wool and cloth and it was really booming in the late 19th century early 20th century and very wealthy and employed thousands of people I mean in 1911 the mills in Huddersfield area employed 22,000 people literally a third of all the men and two thirds of all the women worked in mills but in the 1960s onwards the industry went into decline and that's why there's so many ruined mills and disused mills in the valley now. Basically, due to competition from cheaper manufacturer fabric in um, other countries. So I'd like to say at the beginning of the week we did check the forecast. Today like today, the Wednesday, <laughs> was going to be sunny. So that's the day we decided to come out to the river. It's actually quite atmospheric, even in the rain, isn't it? I mean, looking here, you can see these great ruins. They're at least three or four storeys high, stone-built. And, you know, getting on for 200 years old. And although some parts have been ruined, there's still some machinery lingering. I think we, we can see the machinery that operates the sluice gates. It's an interesting place to be. It is what you would call a liminal space, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and also, so the the whole area, not only the former mill pond, but it's, it's full of birch trees, willow trees, scrub, beer cans, undergrowth, graffiti. Lots of BMX ramps. Yeah, little paths. Yeah. Wending their way yeah. through the bramble. When I was walking down the colon, I was trying to stick as close to the riverbank as I could. And a lot, in a lot of places, there's fences and restrictions and in industrial estates. Um, but you can still get to a lot of the riverbank as mm. well. 
but not always on formal footpaths. What you find is throughout, like here, yeah. people have made their way to the river, like there's informal little muddy tracks everywhere. There's quite a lot of evidence that different people are using this space, Yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, evidence of like people just sitting by the riverbank in isolated spots with a, with a can of beer or something. Or a fishing rod. Yeah. Um, I started thinking about, well, what kind of space is it that I'm in? Like, it, it's not my home, it's not my workplace, it's not a place where I've been told I've got to do anything like shop. It's not a park. Or be entertained yeah. by something. Yeah. It's this space which has no defined purpose imposed on it mm. by us. It's um, a space, therefore, where you're free to do what you want almost. Yeah. So it's unregulated. Yeah. And it's only a stone's throw from quite tightly regulated space, the canal bank. Yeah. I really mean, immaculate. the canal bank is like 30 metres away. Yeah. And it's, it's a well-maintained flat path signposts yeah whereas here it's the complete opposite yeah here here we're in a different space completely and we just saw some kids running through the mill in hoodies <laughs> it's a fantastic place for teenagers isn't it yeah, yeah. but it's also even though there's danger signs say, up it's a little bit dangerous yeah. isn't it you could there could you could easily get you could easily fall you know this thing these accidents could happen and you never know quite who you're going to meet so yeah. there's an element of danger and yeah you know a bit of a, a tingly feeling of uncertainty excitement and yeah. adventure like when I was walking down the river and I was in these spaces I felt like a kid again I felt like I was on an adventure playing playing out and I think it's because the space isn't defined for anything mm. there goes another train um, it gives you that headspace it puts you in uh, a headspace you know I'm not supposed to be doing anything here. I can, therefore, I can do and think what I want. Mental freedom. Yeah, yeah. So I think these spaces are really special and important. Councils and governments will try and develop them and get rid of them and and call them unsafe. But there's something really special they serve, about they serve, them. They serve a purpose. Well, large parts of the riverbank are like this, aren't they? Sort of gap between the river and industry, or the gap between river and the city. Is, is like this, scrubby, wooded, overgrown, messy, and here the trees are mainly young, but some places we've been, you know, there's some quite big trees, I and mean, it's almost woodland, isn't it? Succession has been going on for quite a long time. I just thought, what would it be like for beavers? You know, because lots of places around the country are reintroducing beavers, and you could imagine them felling trees, making dams, in this area.
So, we uh, aborted yesterday's trip to the river mid-afternoon because it just got too wet and cold. But we've come back today, um, we're by the riverside as it passes on the southern edge of Huddersfield Town Centre. I just did a little sound walk from the main road, the Colne Road in fact, across a piece of scrap land that's now being used as a car park down to the riverbank and maybe you noticed there the kind of transition in the soundscape from very noisy traffic so now we can hear the flowing water and there is a timber yard opposite so we've got the kind of sawmills going but it's um, a bit more of a tranquil space than up by the road you can probably hear the river flowing it's quite full it, we were going to go under one of the road bridges on a shingly bank but that's all underwater now isn't it on the bank we can see lots of trees it's quite woody there's some big sycamore trees lots of willow and some ash trees and quite a bit of Japanese knotweed maybe if it weren't for the timber yard opposite you wouldn't know that you were practically in the middle of Huddersfield what, what we're saying is the right close to the streets and the traffic is a beautiful flowing river with woody banks on Yeah, a bit of a, a green oasis, really. One of the things we can see quite close to is stuff dangling in the branches. It looks like sort of grey fabric, tissues. It's what's known in the trade as sewage litter. Yeah, so it's, but it's kind of hanging from the trees, low-lying branches, a foot or two off the surface of the water at the moment. So that, all that material has probably come from combined sewer overflows, which are overflows from the sewer, as the name suggests, that discharge when it's wet. When it's particularly heavy rainfall. Yeah, because a lot of the sewerage system is designed to carry sewage from our homes. Like from the drains, so anything we put down in the toilet or from the kitchen sink yeah. drains. Yeah. yeah, but it might also take clean water, so like runoff from roofs or roads and it'll all go into the same network and so when it rains heavily the flow increases dramatically and in order that the downstream sewage works which is ultimately receiving all this wastewater can still operate and doesn't flood some of this flow is discharged before it gets to the sewage works through these um, outlets called combined sewer overflows. So that means that we've got a combination of sewage coming from people's toilets and drains mixed with clean rainwater essentially, yeah. washing straight into the river. Yeah, yeah. So it's dilute sewage. And of course anything that anyone decides to flush down the toilet like risks get, going into the river. And what we're seeing here is exactly that. that things like Sometimes sanitary waste and wet wipes in particular. I've seen a lot of wet wipes mm. um, get into the river, get caught on the trees, and you get these accumulations mm. of uh, detritus on the trees. And it's, they're actually plastic, aren't they, essentially? They're not going to biodegrade. Some of the material's plastic. Yeah. The wet wipes, um, I think there are some claims on some packets of wet wipes that they're biodegradable, but it's really evident that they're not very readily biodegradable. If they are biodegradable, it's going to take ages. Yeah, and these um, combined sewer overflow events, we've had loads and loads of storms and lots of heavy rainfall. Every time that happens, it, all the combined sewer outflows are going to be draining sewage and stuff straight into the river. There is an argument that, yeah, it's going into the river, but everything's diluted, you know. It is diluted with rainwater. The river's diluted with rainwater and runoff. So the impacts on the river itself are what you might say acceptable. Or yeah, but if you want no. to come and paddle or swim in the river, and it happens to have been raining a few days ago, how do you know if it's clean enough? Well, you could check and see where the combined sewer overflows are and it, there is a website actually I think it's called is my river fit to play in and it's run by the rivers trust and it's really good actually because you can type in your town or locality or whichever river you're interested in and it'll show you on a kind of GIS map 
where the combined sewer overflows are. And in addition, the water companies are now monitoring some of the combined sewer overflows. So you can find information on how often an overflow might spill in a year mm. and how many metres cubed of sewage might be being released. So you can see the overflows that are discharging larger amounts or discharging more more frequently and maybe use that in your decision making. I mean, basically you want to swim as high upstream yeah. as you can because but the further you go downstream, the more population there is, the greater numbers of CSOs, combined sewer overflows. And on, on this stretch, going through Huddersfield, there's quite a few. And I think on the whole river, which is 12 miles long, I think there's like over 25 mm. combined sewer overflows. But it's fair to say that the system could be re-engineered so that sewage never went in the river. I mean, if the rainwater didn't ever get into mix with the sewage, yeah. the whole system could be redesigned. It wouldn't be quite expensive, but it's within engineering possibility, isn't it? So that the, this river or rivers could never have sewage coming into them and always be as clean as possible. Yeah, it costs loads of money. Mm. Some things they've, they've done in, in some areas as well is build big tanks into the sewage network so there's more capacity in the sewage network to hold this stormwater um, rather than release it to the river. I, I imagine it would cost millions and millions of pounds. Which would go onto the water bills of the public. Yeah. So people yeah. would have to pay more for water. Yeah in order to guarantee that rivers didn't have sewage in them. Yeah, but one thing the public could do immediately, immediately and anyway is not put stuff that isn't biodegradable, that isn't pee or poo down the toilet because it might end up in the river and then it's stuck or flowing out to the next river and then to the sea. Yeah, I heard um, it expressed by a child that it was just the four peas that should go in the toilet. Pee, poo, paper, and puke. Oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like that. I was reading a report about improving fish stocks in the pond. It was a report by a freshwater fish organisation, I can't remember. It was an organisation devoted to wild trout. Yeah, and they'd been commissioned by a local organisation called Green Streams who are working to like look after the river and open up access for the public. And um, they've come and done a little survey at some sites around Huddersfield to talk about how fish populations could be in improved. And they talked in there about the impact of weirs and how if you're a fish, what you need in a river is a great variety of different habitats and flow patterns, you need places to spawn, you need places where your eggs are going to hatch, you need places where you can shelter. And one of the impacts of a weir when it's put in is that the water above it kind of backs up a bit and slows down and the loss of energy causes the sediment to deposit out of the water. So you get quite a silty substrate, which is certainly not good for laying your eggs in. But also, we're upon we're upon we're, and wall upon wall upon wall on either side has the kind of overall impact of homogenising the river habitat and reducing the variation that the fish like in terms of the different types of places to do different things in. Mm. Um, so this report was all about how can we mess the river up again a bit? How can we create areas of high energy where sediment can't settle or areas where gravel banks might form so that you've then got spawning areas. It's quite interesting. Mm. And they talked in there about you can put in fish passes because another thing is if you're a fish and there's a really high weir It's like a massive stream, step, isn't it? They can't you can't get actually it. go any further upstream. You can't use the full river. You can mm. just use the stretch you're in, I suppose. But what's quite good is when these old weirs just start to fall apart and these big stones fall in, these gaps start appearing and these rootways start appearing. Another thing that helps is when there's fallen trees and fallen branches Yeah, and that creates variety and changes in flow and opportunities for shingle to accumulate. Another good reason why beavers 
Yeah, imagine beavers making a reintroduced in Huddersfield. Yeah, it would be great. There would be well, because there's so many trees on the river bank. They've got a long corridor effectively, yeah. in which they could operate and bring down a few trees, make some dams. There have been lots of places now in Britain and other countries where they have reintroduced beavers, and it has a really positive, beneficial effect on wildlife generally. No reason why it shouldn't be here as well. Yeah, bring back the beavers to Huddersfield. <laughs> come a few miles downstream we've left Huddersfield behind and we're nearly at the end of the River Colne the point at which it joins the River Calder and we're at a place called Colne Bridge but basically we're standing on the edge of a swiftly flowing wide River Colne at this point and um, when we were here in the summer we walked up and down on shingle banks in the river bed didn't we the other thing we saw when we were here in the summer was kingfishers we saw a whole family working their way up and down this section of the river. Which was amazing considering we're nearly at the most downstream point of the river where the full impact of all the sewage and litter and everything Industrial else that goes into the river yeah. is taking its toll. At the moment, although it's not in full flood, we can definitely smell a bit of sewage, can't we? There's a whiff of sewage yeah, in there. Yeah, it's a sewagey whiff. But here it's quite lovely. I mean... There's extensive woods on each side um, with a lot of undergrowth, brambles, small trees. And we know that there's good fishing here because, again, in the summer, we met a fly fisherman all kitted up, wandering up this stretch, trying to fish for trout and grayling, which are both fish, like we said before, that thrive in good quality water. So now we're almost at the end of the river, Joey, and you've spent a lot of time in this river over the summer. What are your feelings and thoughts now about your relationship or people's relationship with the river? Yes. <clears throat> you said I spent a lot of time in the river. I was w walking mainly along the river, although I have to say, as my journey continued, I did become more and more inclined to get in it. And it was funny, I started off at the beginning thinking, I can't get wet feet. Oh, I'm going to stay at the river. Oh, I'm going to get wet. <laughs> And then I had this kind of like flip in my head where I thought, why do I think I can't get in the river? I guess it was partly to do with the fact that I know kind of what can lurk in the river in terms of broken glass and pollution and what have you. Also because there's lots of signs up saying dangerous, dangerous, dangerous currents. Um, but partly also because I've lost my childhood sense of adventure, haven't I? Um, you've got to try and hold on to that as you get older. But anyway, getting back to your questions, I mean, I think this river, it's a combination of nature and human intervention, you know, with everything to do with the way that um, we've walled it and weird it and use it. It's not taking its natural course anymore. Mm. It's in, in a more kind of linear form, I suppose. I think it would probably meander more and be much more varied if we hadn't engineered it so much. Um, I think we have this kind of quite paradoxical relationship with the river. You know, most of the locations I went, it was clear there were people who were using the river. Whether I saw them or not, there was evidence. There were little pathways down to the water's edge and lots of little sites where people have made campfires or left their beer cans or whatever so there's this attraction humans have to the water and the river and the headspace it provides you and the um the bank side yeah um, environment yeah yeah and this liminal sense that you get that kind of maybe frees up your head on the edge yeah between and space. also there's some nice formal paths along the river which certainly provide access for people with small families or people who are less mobile who want to go to somewhere nice so there's this great attraction of the river and it feels like it's alive because it's continually moving and flowing. Mm. But then there's all this stuff we do to it. Like, we have made decisions about how we're going to use it, how we're going to constrain it, what we're going to allow ourselves to put in it, 
So it's really paradoxical. On the one hand, we love it. On the other hand, we subject it and the things that live in it to some pretty mm. terrible things. Well, we're abusing it. We? Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about some of the massive pollution incidents that have taken yeah. place and the big fish kills. And there's places where it's completely built over, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, there's a few places where it's completely built over, mainly to do with roads and old mills. And probably not as bad, actually, as some of the tributaries that feed into the River Colne, which are probably completely culverted now. Probably lots of little mm. streams that mm. used to flow down the hillsides through open fields and what have you into this river that are completely buried under pavements and concrete now. One of the things I found spending time by the river in the summer when you were recording, I was often sitting by the water's edge for several hours at a time and just being by the flowing water takes you into a different headspace. I mean, it's instantly calming and engaging and stops you worrying and thinking about all the things that are crowding into your mind because you just watch the water and wildlife that's going on around you. And then in the summer you did have this experience of visiting a river down south, didn't you? I was cycling down a couple of riverside paths in south London on the River Wandle and the River Ravensbourne. And there the councils and other community groups had obviously taken a great interest in the river and there were lots of um, information boards and there was an accessible route upstream, heading south upstream, and these chalk-based rivers... And they were great, full of wildlife and full of people outside enjoying these rivers in all sorts of different ways. But did you feel that those spaces had lost part of their magic? Well, I think what I thought was that there's the route you can walk or cycle along or push a buggy along, but by the side of the route you were quickly into wild, scrubby, unregulated landscapes. So I think there's room for both. I think we should mention that there's actually a big plan for this river called the Three Valleys Nature Park. Yeah, that's quite an exciting plan, isn't it? That's being done by a partnership of organisations within Kirklees to try and create a nature park for humans and for wildlife involving the River Colm and the Holm and the Calder. Yeah, and it's a kind of linear park, so the park follows the river. I guess one thing that I maybe didn't say before is that I got, also got this sense that the river will keep going. Um, it's a living thing. And, you know, no matter what we do to it, it keeps flowing. And the species that like the river habitat, like the wagtails and herons and kingfishers and dippers and fish, the fish. and invertebrates... Um, they keep doing their thing. So it's got a great potential for recovery, isn't I it? I think, yeah, that's right. I think it doesn't take nature long to recover and bounce back. If you improve the conditions, life starts flowing in. Do you think we could ever be like the Maoris? I think it's too late for most of us. But we could all develop a closer relationship with our rivers and consciously look after them and spend time there. And a lot of what we've been talking and thinking about on the River Colm applies to pretty much every river, doesn't it? So wherever you are listening to this podcast, get out and get to know your own local river, what's going on on the riverbank. Love your river. <laughs> so we'll say goodbye to the River Colm now, I think been nice getting to know you. So we're leaving you with the sounds of the River Colm recorded in the summer. But it's just one last thing to say. Um, about two minutes after the start of this podcast, when we're describing the course of the rivers downstream, uh, we noticed a small emission. The Colm joins the Calder, which flows into the air, and this joins the River Ouse, which finally flows into the Humber and then to the North Sea. And we've also put some links on the Nature Tripping podcast page of the website joekennedysound.com 
um, for resources, organisations and other things that I hope you'll find interesting. <laughs>